0: I'd like to invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 9, as we resume our sermon series through the book of Genesis, though we've been out of Genesis for a few weeks. We return now to Genesis chapter 9 at the end of the flood narrative, and we've seen over the past several weeks and months that the flood narrative is an episode in which God, in some ways, uh, renews his creation. Uh, The flood is uh, a decreation and a recreation. The flood is a judgment on human sin, and though all of life is destroyed except for Noah and his family and those who are in the ark, we see God's mercy and grace on the other side of the ark. For as Noah disembarks from the ark, God now speaks a word of blessing over him and institutes his covenant with him. And so this blessing that we will see this morning shows God's faithfulness to Noah uh, and to all of humanity and which shows us God's value that he places on human life. And so if you have found your way to Genesis chapter 9, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, And be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If anyone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. As I've noted, we've seen that the flood narrative is written for us to see a new creation story. Much like the earth in the beginning was formless and void, waters covering the earth and it was lifeless. We see in the flood narrative that waters again cover the earth and it is formless in this way, void of life life we see the spirit hovering over the surface of the water in Genesis 1 and we now see the spirit of God blowing upon the surface of the water to uh, dry the surface of the earth and dry land emerges from the deep the sky and the land and the sea are all filled with living creatures as they were in the beginning And Noah here is depicted as a sort of second Adam and head of the human race. But even though this is a new creation story of sorts, this doesn't mean that humanity is starting with a clean slate. No, humanity still remains sinful you see there's no new garden of eden there's no pronouncement of original righteousness and innocence in fact the opposite is true as we've seen over time that in genesis 6 the intentions of the human heart were evil continually and on the other side of the flood god acknowledges that he will never again curse the ground because of human beings even though the inclinations of the human heart is evil from youth onward Humanity is totally depraved from the time that we come into existence and now original sin is the mark of our nature rather than the original righteousness that was the mark of Adam. We are born guilty, morally depraved, and comprehensively evil. And the flood, though it is a new creation story, did not change the hearts of men. And redeemed and righteous, Noah still carries sin into the new world. And though the earth may be less full of wickedness, the heart of man remains just as sinful as ever before. And so now, on the other side of the flood, we might ask ourselves, or we might be wondering, what will God's relationship be to man now? If they're still sinful and their posture is still of intentional evil, how will God respond? How will He relate to? humanity. Well we read here in these verses that even after God judges the world by this flood and though the effects of sin still remain on the earth and within the human heart God speaks a word of blessing over Noah and he begins to institute a covenant with Noah that shows God's favor towards him. Now we will look more at the terms of that covenant next week, but particularly today we want to focus on the blessings of this covenant that are given in these first seven verses because this word of blessing shows God's benevolence and favor and kindness towards humanity. It shows us that though man is sinful, God's design and purpose is still for man's good. God's purpose is still for man's good, and we want to see that first this morning by looking in the first few verses here, that God renews the creation mandate. God renews the creation mandate. You see, he blesses Noah, it says in verse 1, and his sons, and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth you see the last time that we were together in Genesis we looked at verses 8 through uh, chapter 8 20 through 22 and God is deliberating within himself he is speaking to himself he has smelled the sacrifice that Noah has offered to him and it is a sweet smelling aroma and God promises within himself covenanting with himself never to curse the ground though man is sinful and never to strike down all life as he did in the flood rather God is going to maintain his sovereign in providence over creation. But now, in answering the question, what is God's posture going to be towards humanity? God speaks directly to Noah, and it's a blessing that he speaks over him. Now you might hear familiar language within that blessing that God speaks over Noah because it mirrors the creation mandate that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. If we were to go back and read in Genesis 1.28, we would read there, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. The earth, and so this new creation mandate that, that is renewed and given to Noah is uh, very comparable to that one that is given in Genesis 1.28 because it begins by God blessing them, and God speaks this blessing directly over them now this blessing is not merely god's goodwill nor his best wishes he did, just as god did not create adam and turn him loose to do as he pleases so god does not deliver noah from the flood to do as he pleases this is a divine expectation that god is placing upon noah This is communicating God's purpose for man, and it is communicating God's goodness and favor towards man in uh, giving them ability to fulfill that purpose. There's divine enablement here that God is blessing them with, that the words that He is commanding them to do, God is also going to grant grace and ability for them to carry it out. God blesses Noah and his family just as He blesses Adam and his family. And the blessing that is given is this creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. And so as Noah is standing there upon the tops of the mountains of Ararat, looking down over the Mesopotamian plain from which life will begin to spring forth, he receives this command, be fruitful and multiply, mirroring the mandate that is given to Adam and to his suitable helper Eve. And so we know from reading earlier in the flood narrative that Noah and his wife. And his sons and their wives all entered into the ark together. They were saved by God through this ark. And so each of them, Noah and all three of his sons, have helpers suitable to them, just as Adam had a helper suitable to him. And so though generations removed from Adam in a fallen world, God's plan for Noah and his sons is for them to live within God's design. This begins with the institution of marriage. We learned about that in Genesis chapter 2. Each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. The institution of marriage is between one man and one woman, but there also exists within that union gender roles of headship of the man and of helper or being a, a companion for the woman. And within the context of that marriage, there's to be procreation, being fruitful and multiplying. It's within this marital union that God charges man to be fruitful and multiply. And so man's first task given to him, both in the original creation and this sort of new creation on the other side of the flood, is to be fruitful, multiply, and to produce more image bearers that spread across the face of the earth. They're to propagate life they're to bear children and then these offspring are to marry and to bear children themselves and in this way humanity is going to spread across the face of the earth filling the earth with image bearers to reflect the glory of God this is the blessing and the commission that is given to Noah here in Genesis chapter 9 they're to fill the earth I think this primarily refers to the procreation that is to occur, the multiplication, but more than that, more than filling the earth with people, just as we saw back in Genesis 1, this is probably a command to fill the earth with civilization and with order. They're to build homes and buildings and communities and cities. They're to fill the earth with farmland. Culture is to flourish and life is to prosper on earth. This is God's blessing upon Noah. And so they're to fill the earth with order as God, fill the order just as God brought order out of chaos and forming and filling the earth and just as God brought order to the world following the flood. So we see here this figure Noah as a second Adam is to be faithful in obedience to God and receives God's blessing to do this. Well, as we will see next week, this is the blessing of the Noahic covenant that is made with Noah. And we're all, brothers and sisters, as human beings accountable to this covenant that is instituted with Noah, one author says it this way, so then all mankind is called to raise up and establish structured and successful societies pursuing cultural achievement and growth. Man is not called to sit in the dirt and mope. We are called to work. Though the ground may sprout thorns and our brows may pour forth sweat, despite resistance and setback, curse and difficulty, God has called all mankind, men and women, to be workers. We are to be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and master it. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, we ought to lead in this. We ought to model this for the rest of humanity around us, bearing children and raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and receiving them as God's blessing and good gift to us, multiplying to the glory of God so that there are more image bearers that reflect His goodness on the earth. We as Christians ought to work for cultural advancement, filling the earth with civilization and culture to the glory of God. Each of us have our own unique and respective vocations that God has placed us within. And in each of those respective vocations, we have the ability to reflect the creative goodness of God in our lives. And we as Christians ought to model that and lead in that for The rest of the world but we recognize that in this covenant with Noah this is a covenant of common grace that is given to all mankind there's nothing that's going to save us in doing those things and yet God has instilled within us through the new covenant through his saving grace in our lives the ability and the willingness to live according to his purposes and according to his good pleasure and so it's through the new covenant of grace, that regenerative grace that we have in our souls, that we are able to carry out this covenant of common grace that is given to Noah. And so we pursue cultural achievements by God's common grace but it is also amazing here that as we think about that even though this is there's a distinction between God's common grace and his saving grace it's amazing here that God blesses Noah who is himself A sinner, Immediately after God, speaking within himself, acknowledges that the intentions of the human heart are evil from their youth onward, he has Noah and his sons in mind. In fact, we're going to see that in a couple weeks when we see the fall of Noah himself. God has them in his mind, and yet he still pronounces this blessing upon them. The posture of God toward fallen humanity is one of benevolence and kindness, increasing life and grace. Granting His blessings to them. This is the goodness and faithfulness of God in the world. This is the creation mandate here renewed for Noah and for all of us to obey. But there is one distinct difference. There's a significant omission that is left off that was a part of the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28. We read it there. It said that they are to subdue the earth and to rule over it or exercise dominion over it. You see, that's what Adam and Eve were to do, but that language is missing from God's charge to Noah. And I think this is an acknowledgment that because of sin, things have changed irreparably changed you see one of the effects of sin in the world is the breaking down of the harmony between man and other creatures we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 with the fall that the relationships between man and man and the relationships between man and God were broken down and now here on the other side of the flood we see very clearly that the man the relationship between man and the rest of creation is irreparably damaged this is one of the effects of sin whereas Adam exercised lordship over the animals and that they come to him in Genesis chapter 2 peacefully uh, in a parade of animals so to speak before Adam for him to name them one by one he has dominion over them in this special and unique way now that harmony and order is broken. This has changed after the flood and animals no longer serve mankind and have harmony with mankind in the way that they did before. Even domesticated and tamed animals sometimes act in disobedience and hostility toward man. You might think of a horse bucking its rider from its back. I know some of us have recently had experience with that. That's a part of the fallen world in which we live. Even beyond that, many animals are a threat to human beings, threatening to take our lives. But now, animals are given an instinct of, uh, an instinct of fear and dread of man because man is a threat to them. You deer hunters in the room know this all too well. There's nothing that will startle a deer quite like the scent of a man in the forest, right? And they go running when they know that man is present there with them. This is a result of sin in the world. This demonstrates that sin has indeed broken down the harmony that once existed between man and other creatures, And there's exceptions to that, of course. Many of us may have pets and uh, family dogs that we love to enjoy or domesticated livestock that serve and help us. And all of these things show God's grace even in those things. But uh, as in a generic way, animals do not serve man in the way that they once did. Sin has destroyed the harmony that once existed. Where peace and harmony once existed, sinful alienation is now the rule. And in light of this new rule in a fallen world, God makes a provision for man. Look with me at verse 3. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you every. You see, this shows how sin, again, has changed our relationship to creation. Man will now kill and consume the animals that once come peacefully to him. You see, before the flood, God gave every green plant and seed-bearing plant and all the fruit of the trees and those things for man to eat. But now God sanctions the eating of meat. He gives all living things as food for mankind to be received with thanksgiving. Now, the question arises here should Christians, in pursuit of God's original design and plan for the world, become Christian vegetarians and try to go all the way back to the garden rather than this mandate given in Genesis 6. And I think the answer to that is no. The rest of the Bible assumes that eating meat is acceptable to God. In fact, Paul highlights in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there were false teachers that were trying to forbid that which God has granted to man. And he says there, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is reject excuse me if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer so Brothers and sisters, we can enjoy our steaks, our hamburgers, our chicken, but we must receive them especially and particularly as God's provision for us. These are to be received with a thanksgiving, but this also means that we must not be cruel to animals, and it doesn't mean that we can kill any animal that we want without purpose. God has given animals to man now to sustain their lives and to sustain their existence. And so as we think about all of this, as God renews this creation mandate with mankind, we must stand in awe of the goodness and the benevolence of God towards us as His creatures in a fallen world. Consider the blessings of God upon humanity. Consider His posture of benevolence towards us as His creatures, even as fallen creatures. And in this fallen world, God renews His creation mandate and he wants us to be particularly aware of the blessing of life that he as the giver of life has given us but secondly i want us to see now that god declares the intrinsic value of life god declares the intrinsic value of life look with me at verse four he's given every creature for food to eat and then he says in verse four however you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. And so see, here we have this declaration of the value of life, of human life, but also of animal life because there's limitations and restrictions placed upon the liberty that is granted to eat meat in verse 3 because it has lifeblood in it. Now, this is not saying that blood is where life resides necessarily, but it is saying that the spilling of blood is emblematic of death. There is a, a, a blood symbolizes life. Flowing blood and a beating heart indicate life in a creature, both of a human and of an animal. If you go to the doctor or you get picked up by an ambulance, one of the first things they're going to do is check all of your vitals, your blood measurements, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your oxygen saturation. Why? Because these are indicators of life. And if there's something wrong with those things, then life is on its way out. In an emergency situation, we immediately check the pulse of a person to ensure that there is still life in them. There's this intimate relationship between blood and life. And so God is instilling within humanity here from the flood onwards a value and a reverence of human life. There's a sanctity to all human life. And though we can eat meat and uh, consume them for our, our enjoyment and for our sustenance, we still must have reverence for life. And so God is instilling within humanity a uh, humane taking of life. And particularly, I think, a selective taking of life. There's not to be rampant bloodshed even of animal life, but it's to be killed and taken for its proper use. And then God says that you must not consume its blood why is this is because God is the giver of life first and foremost is because God is the giver of life and to consume the lifeblood is to assume a a sort of deity taking responsibility for the life itself in not taking of the blood is an acknowledgement and a recognition that this life come from God and it belongs to God but beyond that later in the old testament we're going to see that the lifeblood is reserved for atoning sacrifices it appeases the wrath of God for example in Leviticus 17 it said there for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement And so God is reserving the lifeblood to demonstrate for us this substitutionary nature of atonement, that there is a life being exchanged for a life by the pouring out of the blood and by the sacrificing of the blood and the entirety of the animal. There's a death for a death being exchanged there and a life for a life because sin demands death. And if it's not my death, then it must be the death of this animal that is representing me on the altar being burnt up before for God. So God reserves that for His atoning purposes. And it would be amiss here to not say that in the gospel of Jesus Christ we see Him shedding His blood in particular as an atonement for our sins. There's a reason that Jesus goes to the cross and pours out His blood. It's spilled for humanity so that they might be reconciled back to God. It's because His life is being exchanged for our life. He's dying in our place. He is our substitutionary atonement. That's the message here that's being communicated to Noah that life that there is this principle of life for a life and sin demands death and dear friend if you're here this morning and you don't know and acknowledge that you're a sinner before God the scriptures condemn you and show you that you are wicked and you have rebelled against God and the intentions of your heart are evil from your youth onward evil continually scripture says you are at enmity with God But by His grace, He has provided a means for you to be reconciled back to Him. But it is only through the lifeblood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no works of your hands, there's no no ability of your own, there's no sacrifice that you can offer that will appease and atone the wrath of God. But he has appointed that by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins and brought near to the God you have wronged can be reconciled to Him. You can be made right. And it's only through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing that His blood is enough. Believing that His perfect righteous life that is laid down on the altar of the cross for you is enough to appease the wrath of God. And that His righteousness clothes you and that is none of your righteousness on your own but it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone if you will put your faith in Jesus in that way and turn from your sin you will be saved his lifeblood will cover your life and his death will stand as your death this is the lifeblood and the reverence for life that God intends to instill in mankind in this way But greater than the blood of animals, God instills a value on human life because He imposes a penalty on the taking of human life. First to an animal that would take the human's life. Man's life is superior to the life of animals. Man can kill an animal and consume it, but if an animal kills a man, God says here in Genesis 9 that the animal should be killed. And then beyond that, if another human slays a human, then his life should be taken from him. God is instituting a sanctity of human life here. And it's enshrined not only here in Genesis 9, but in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder There is an absolute ban on the taking of human life here. It's repeated three times in verses 5 through 6. I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from an animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. You see, there's no punctuation in the Hebrew language there's no exclamation points and so the way God is getting this point across screaming in all caps to us is that he repeats it three times I will require the penalty for that person's life animal blood may be consumed but human blood is not to be shed at all this is a prohibition against the illegitimate taking of a life And so God is protecting human life in this way, instilling within man a value of human life. This applies first to the area of murder. There's to be no spilling of blood in this way, but we can think of ways in our culture that there are applications and implications of these verses more broadly. First, in the place of abortion, we as a culture murder innocent unborn babies in the womb, though God has clearly said That it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's wombs. This is the willful taking of a human life. And people don't even try to hide that fact anymore. used to be it was a clump of cells. It wasn't a human life. But now I just don't want it. It inconveniences me. I'm going to take its life. God says I will require a penalty for that. We also think of euthanasia and the killing of the elderly life is sacred and it belongs to God and we cannot act as deity to intentionally end a person's life God has forbidden that and he will require a penalty for that life but certainly I think and even perhaps more sensitive is the subject of suicide You see, life belongs to God. It does not belong to you or me. We are not the authors of our own life. God has made us. He has appointed and numbered our days. And we don't have the right to take our lives into our own hands. We don't have the right to deliberately and knowingly harm ourselves. God has forbidden that here in Genesis 9 and in the sixth commandment. And so so resolved is God against murder in any of these ways that He demands an account for it every time it happens. I will require penalty for that life. Now some might would say that uh, God is just encouraging another murder, another shedding of blood, that he's being contradictory in this way. But God is insisting upon the sanctity of human life, that as a person takes a human life, so they are forfeiting their own life, because life belongs to God alone. This is what we've seen in the animal, and not taking of the lifeblood. Life belongs to God alone. But beyond that, God says that we are fellow brothers. Look with me there verse 6. He says, excuse me, verse 5, he says, if anyone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Now in the Hebrew, this is the same word for brother. And that might sound familiar to you because we read in Genesis chapter 4, as God comes to Cain after he kills his brother Abel, he says, where is your brother Abel? And so God is speaking and and elaborating upon that to say that we are fellow men, that we are brothers. There's a brotherhood of the entire human race. We're all children of Noah and brothers in this way. And to take a human life is to violate that which God has instituted here. But beyond that, he says in verse 6 that man is made in the image of God, pointing back to Genesis chapter 1 where man is made to reflect the glory of God. And to take a human life is to destroy the image of God in that way. Though we in a fallen world understand that the image of God in us is marred and tarnished, it is still present. We as rational, moral, spiritual creatures image image God in these ways and display His glory. And so God particularly protects and preserves life by giving others the ability to Enact the death penalty, capital punishment for the taking of a human life. Now this is not given to just one individual to enact vengeance for the taking of life. No, this is a societal institution. This is a provision given to mankind. And we recognize that through governmental structures today that the sword, Paul says in Romans 13, is given to the government for the protecting of life and for enforcing or, or rewarding those who do good god is establishing this new set of conditions for man's life on earth through human government for the preservation of human life and existence god establishes human government to hold evil in check and to preserve life our confession speaks of this in this way chapter 4 paragraph excuse me chapter 24 paragraph 1 says god The supreme Lord and King of the whole earth has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose he has armed them with the power of the sword to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evil doers. Here in Genesis 9 we have a commentary on what has become necessary on earth because of the sinfulness of Humanity. God institutes the death penalty to instill the value of human life in a fallen world. And though some would argue against this, one argue, author says this, but to argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. To ignore it is to despise life. This was and is God's word to a violent World. This was meant and is meant to protect human life. To ignore God's teaching is to descend evermore into a society of violence. And so murder, the taking of a human life, is a Threat to the blessing that God has instituted upon man in the Noahic covenant. God blesses them and says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to take a human life is to undermine what God has ordained for man to be doing rather than filling the earth you are taking life from the earth and God has condemned it to such a respect that he institutes capital punishment for those who would enact such a crime against humanity all life belongs to God so brothers and sisters as we think about this text we obviously have the implication do not murder not to take the life of another human being and for many of you you're like well that's obvious I'm not going to do that But doesn't Jesus say, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the courts. Whoever says, you fool, you'll be subject to hellfire. And so Jesus escalates, raises the stakes and says, it's not just the intentional, deliberate taking of a life of a human being, but the one who hates his brother and is angry with his brother in his heart is guilty of murder. And so, brothers and sisters, let us guard our hearts in this way. Let us show respect to life and to God, not only by not intentionally taking life, but by not hating, being angry with one another and showing disregard for one another in this Way, But let us also argue for and defend the life of those who are unable to defend the lives of themselves. Whether we're talking about abortion or whether we're talking about a euthanasia, we as Christians must apologetically stand for the truth of God's Word and defend life as He has given it. So dear Christian, as we close, we think about the covenant that was given to Noah and what a gracious benevolent covenant it is and we're going to consider more about that next week but as it stands today there are blessings imparted to mankind he has bestowed blessing and grace upon us that is ours in Christ Jesus he imparts to us the ability and the effort to carry it out though we are sinful God's design for us is good and so we want to praise him for that this morning let's go to him in prayer Lord, we thank you for your blessing that is poured out upon us. Lord, we're in awe of your common grace that is benevolently and generously bestowed upon us. Lord, you cause it to rain upon the just and the unjust. Lord, you show your graciousness to us in this way. But Lord, we stand even more in awe that through the lifeblood of Jesus Christ shed for us, you have poured out saving grace reconciling grace upon us and so father we rejoice in that and stand in awe of that this morning knowing that we will never be able to comprehend your love that is demonstrated in the killing of your son that we might be saved so father may we praise your name because of that this morning and may the one who does not know christ in this way come to know him by the regenerative work of your spirit in jesus name amen